So we've been working our way through a series on developing a biblical worldview, looking at life through the lens of Scripture and how that affects and impacts everything that we think and do in our lives. And each week I've given you a handout along with an introductory definition of a worldview, different perspective, because there are a lot of different ways that we can say it, but basically we're talking about the same thing. And the definition this evening is from Bobby Harrington. Here's what he wrote. He said, a biblical worldview is a view of the world which seeks to answer life's biggest questions from the teaching of the Bible. Many people see having a biblical worldview as unimportant. This includes non-Christians who see the world from a different worldview, as well as Christians who don't want to apply what the Bible says to cultural issues or everyday life. Yet, if the teachings of the Bible are true, then we do well to hold them up like a lantern uh, to the rest of reality in order to illuminate the answers to life's biggest questions. Your worldview gives you the big picture so that you can make sense of the individual pieces and arrange them in place. There is overlap between your worldview and the grand story you believe about reality. We began by thinking about how a biblical worldview answers six key questions, ranging from origin to identity, the fact that we've been created in the image of God, to the chaos that sin and the fall brought, to the purpose that God has for us to know him and to be reconciled to him in Christ, to morality, and then ultimately to destiny, which speaks to eternal matters. And then we focused on the doctrine of general revelation and the doctrine of special revelation. The doctrine of general revelation being what we can see and observe in the world that God has created that would be evidence of his power, his existence, uh, and his creativity. Special revelation focuses on the living word, Jesus, and then the written word, which is also alive, uh, and how God has revealed himself to us so that we know what we know because God has shown it to us and he's faithfully communicated himself to us. And then we talked about what a meta narrative is and basically the big, broad, sweeping story of the Bible from the beginning to the end and how we are to implement critical thinking to be able to receive information, evaluate it according to the template of Scripture, and then act on it. Uh, and then theology is the study of the nature of God. And uh, Pastor Danny uh, took some time on that on uh, Wednesday evening a couple of weeks ago. And then last week we looked at the idea of epistemology, which is basically the study of knowledge, how we know what we know. So when we start using words like epistemology, we now are uh, moving over just a little bit into the philosophical realm because we're thinking about the nature, the origin, and the limits of human knowledge. And it's also often referred to as the theory of knowledge. And I told you that we should be receptive to knowledge that God has revealed to us. Uh, we should be responsive to knowledge. He didn't just give it to us in a vacuum so that we can know some facts. He gave it to us so that we can live for him. And then we should be resolute in knowledge and that we have to persevere in what we know because there's so many forces coming against it and so many people that uh, don't agree with what we would hold to from the Scripture. God is the ultimate knower. He has created all other knowers. He has revealed himself to us, and his word is the highest epistemic authority. 
Now tonight we're going just a little bit deeper into this realm of philosophy. I'm not a philosopher or a son of a philosopher. However, this is important because it provides some framework on how we might think about God and the evidences of God, how we might interact with the world around us and people who don't have any belief in God at all. And it can help us both from a discipleship perspective so that we can grow stronger in our faith, understanding that we're not just taking a blind leap, and it can help us communicate the truth of the gospel to others. And the three main branches of philosophy are ontology, epistemology, which we talked about last week, and then ethics. And this evening we're focusing on ontology, teleology, and cosmology. And then we're going to conclude it with two other ology words being axiology and praxeology, and it'll make a lot more sense before we're done in our time together. So I want to start with ontology, which is the nature of being, the nature of being. Now you'll note there that we have Psalm 86 and verse 8 as the key verse. And remember, we're looking at this more topically than we normally would if we're just preaching through a book of the Bible, verse by verse or section by section, paragraph by paragraph. These are much broader sweeping ideas but they fit within that framework of Scripture, and they help us to think better and to process our world better as we develop a biblical worldview and hold to it. Psalm 86 and verse 8 says this, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. The ontological argument for the existence of God is a classical argument. And what it does basically foundationally is it, argues from logic the existence of God. Now remember, the Bible doesn't uh, set out to prove the existence of God. It simply declares that God is and God has always been. But it's not outside of our understanding or beyond important for us to think through logically how that could be or what that means that God is eternally existent. And so we're talking about the realm of what is real in what actually exists, not just an idea or a concept, but what is real and what actually exists. So the argument goes something like this. God is, by definition, the greatest conceivable being. So there's none greater than him. We, we can't even logically conceive of anyone who could be or is greater than God. And because we can't conceive of a being that is greater than God, then logically the conclusion would be, that God exists. Now, the proponent of this in church history was a man by the name of Anselm. Uh, He was an important Christian thinker who lived in the 11th century. Uh, He was born in 1033. He eventually held the office of the Archbishop of Canterbury, and some people have referred to him as the second Augustine. If you studied any historical theology or really foundational theology for Uh, the Middle Ages and beyond, you'll know that Augustine is a giant towering figure. He he looms large in our understanding of theology and how we understand the things of God. And Anselm has been referred to as the second Augustine. Now, Anselm proposed the ontological argument for God's existence, and here's how he stated it. He said, a being whose non-existence is inconceivable, like you can't even imagine it, is greater than a being whose non-existence is conceivable. So like all of y'all can think about the fact that it, it would be conceivable to you if I wasn't here or you weren't here or we had never existed. I mean, that's not, that's not that mind-blowing. But to think about the fact that 
God is greater and he is the greatest conceivable being takes it to a whole nother level. God then is a being whose non-existence is inconceivable and we arrive back to the same conclusion, therefore God exists. The word God or God uh, lowercase is used generally, uh, but for this argument, it is a monotheistic argument. This is a, an argument for one God who is eternally existent, and um, that's how this argument is, is formed. C.S. Lewis said a good number of people nowadays say, I believe in God, but not in a personal God. They feel that the mysterious uh, something which is behind all other things must be more than a person. Now the Christians quite agree, but the Christians are the only people who offer any idea of a being that is beyond uh, personality, uh, what, beyond what the personality might be like. All the other people, though they say God is beyond personality, really think of him as something that is impersonal, that is, as something that is less than personable. And he says, if you are looking for something super personal, something more than a person, then it is not a question of choosing between the Christian idea and other ideas. The Christian idea is the only one on the market. So in the Christian worldview, the triune God of Scripture is the ultimate reality. We would say that God is supreme, he's final, and he has all of the fundamental power in all of reality. So he's the greatest He's the most powerful. There's none that could exist greater than him. So here's where the contrast and both the parallel come into play. There is creator and there is creation. Now track with this because this is important. The creator is wholly other. He's altogether different. His ways are higher than our ways. They're not the same as ours. So he's different than anything that exists. And with that, any analogy that we might try to draw in order to show the magnitude of the greatness of God would always fall short. And an example of this is how people have often tried to draw analogies for the Trinity. And I won't go into them because they all are pretty bad and they all fall per, uh, pretty far short. Uh, but people have tried to do it. And what we're understanding here is that any analogy that you make to try to explain God in that way is going to fall at least a little bit short. God is spirit. He's infinite. There's no end to him. He is unchangeable. He is always the same. He is the great I am, and he is the God who is dependent on no other being. Listen to what Psalm 50 and verse 1 and 2 says. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty... God appears in radiance. Or then Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Now when we say that God is dependent on no other being. You'll remember that this relates to the aseity of God. We talked about this when we talked about the characteristics of God and the nature of God. And the aseity of God is the attribute of his independent self-existence. 
So there was nothing that was needed for God to exist because God always existed. There is nothing on which God is dependent to continue to exist. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. God is the uncaused cause. Or we might say that God is the uncreated creator. He's the source of all things. He's the one from whom all things originate and who sustains everything that there is. And it's his power that sustains all of life. So you can begin to understand when you start talking about ontology and how we can understand the nature of God and why does this matter. It matters because it builds our faith. It matters because it builds our confidence in who God is as well as the clarity of our communication about who God is to others. And he said in Isaiah 46 and verse 9, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. We, on the other hand, are created. We are finite. We are continually dependent on God's power. We're told to pray daily that God would give us our daily bread. We need him every moment. And we need the gospel as much today as the day that we got saved. It's, it's, it's not something that we lessen our need for or our dependence on God for. And for the non-Christian, there is no such thing as a creator and a creation distinction. There is no ultimate reality outside of human beings who give uh, their own meaning and purpose to life. There is no creator who is self-contained and self-defined. But when we say that God is the ultimate reality, we're talking about the triune God of Scripture. And everything that we think about can be divided into creator and creation. And the, crea the creation is always dependent on the creator. So now let's think just briefly about some strengths and weaknesses of this particular argument of ontology. The argument uh, is an argument from God rather than to God. In other words, it's anchored in, a, in its simplest form in the nature of being. And we're simply saying in this logical argument, however strong or weak you might think it is, that when we conceive of God, there is no one that we can, can conceive of who is greater. This puts it into perspective who we are and our dependence on him. And if the argument is right, it insists that God exists. And not only does it insist that God exists, it insists that God must exist because he is the greatest of all. And because of the aseity of God, we can depend on him as the independent one. He's able to deliver, he's able to protect, and he's able to keep all who trust in him. Now, what about the weakness of the argument? Well, one of the main uh, weaknesses of the argument was set forth by a contemporary of Anselm who posed the idea that if the logic of the argument were applied to anything other than God, its conclusion would be unreasonable. So therefore, the conclusion of this philosophical argument is unreasonable. And he said the analogy of a perfect island, if it's formulated using the same argument that Anselm reasoned that as the perfect island is thought of, then it must exist, he said that's absurd. That if you only apply it to God and you limit it to that, then it's not sufficient. And I would give a little bit of ground on that if I was arguing from a logical perspective. But I would say 
perhaps as a standalone argument, it's not enough, but as a supplementary argument of our understanding that there's none that can be conceived of who is greater than God, then I think it's a helpful concept. And the strength of the argument is that if you accept the premise, then the conclusion is going to be right because it's going to be logically necessary. It's going to just be the outcome of of what the concept is. Now, second, what about uh, teleology or the study of purpose? Now we go to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, where he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, what does this word teleology mean? It, mean, it, it, it looks very similar to theology, so we might think it was the same, but it, in fact, it's altogether different. Theology being the study of God. Teleology comes from telos. Telos means end or purpose. And then ology, which is the study of. So if you put that together, then it is the study of end or purpose. And what teleology does is it explains an event or an object and it defines it according to what is is designed to do. So let's make this real simple with a with an earthy illustration that we all uh, can identify with. In Greek philosophy, for example, an acorn's telos was to become an oak tree. So the purpose of an acorn that was off of an oak tree was that that acorn would become an oak tree. Now this applies because it speaks to what our purpose is in the economy of God. And it refers to the idea that the human body and this world are so well designed that there's got to be some kind of reason for it. This, this is not random evolutionary chance. This, this is not random processes and, and mutations by which this has all come about. But it's come about by the careful design of the designer, of the creator. And um, William Paley uh, popularized the idea in, in his watchmaker analogy. It's an old philosophical analogy you might have read about or heard about, but I want to go back through it just quickly, and here's how it goes. In crossing a meadow, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. Nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer which I had before given, that for anything I knew, the watch might have always been there. And what Paley does is he points to the complexity and the design that is evident in creation in order to prove, or at least to reflect, God's existence. And this argument's strong proof for God's existence, uh, particularly as you think about things like molecular biology that's continuing to study the complexity of life, and the deeper they go, the deeper they find the complexities are, and this would support this idea. Now, part of the problem with the watchmaker analogy is that it was paired together with the system of thought that was called deism. Deism is the idea that God is the watchmaker, but he wound the watch up. If you think back uh, to the old way of a watch operating, he wound the watch up after he had designed it carefully, and then he just put it into motion. And the problem with deism is that deism presents an impersonal God. 
It presents a God who cannot be known, a God who is, who is transcendent, but he's not imminent, a, a God who is greater than all, but yet he's not really involved in the operation of this world that he created. And that's where the sh- biggest shortcoming of that is, and of course our understanding of Christ and redemption and, and how all that fits together as well. There is a reason and a purpose for life to exist. And a creator is involved with his creation. Life is not the result of a random chance. Now, the teleological argument has received pushback from um, secular biologists, as you might imagine, uh, because they believe that life is is truly meaningless. Uh, Unfortunately, we got a lot of people in this country who also believe that life is meaningless, that it's expendable. Some of the votes demonstrated that pretty clearly yesterday. And it's important for us to understand how God might view these things from his word. In Colossians 1 and verse 16, it's speaking of Christ. And the scripture says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now here's the connection I want to make. The fact that everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus speaks to the purpose of our lives. We were created to know him and to worship God for all of eternity. That's our ultimate destiny. But I don't want you to miss the connection because sometimes we, we have an easier time conceiving of an ultimate destiny but we disconnect it from an immediate purpose. And your ultimate destiny of worshiping God and being in his presence for all of eternity is not disconnected or removed from your immediate purpose of living for him and glorifying him, honoring him with your life in the here and now. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 and verse 10 that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. He also said in Philippians 1 and verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advancement of the gospel. So Paul would say that the created purpose that you and I have is to glorify God, and as the Presbyterian statement of faith says, to enjoy him forever. But then Paul would take a step further, and he would say, look, all circumstances in life are an opportunity for you to do that. So it doesn't matter if it's easy or it's hard. It doesn't matter if it's pleasant or it's miserable. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. God has a purpose for it. And he saw his imprisonment, Paul did, as a blessing. And the reason he saw it as a blessing is because it served to advance the gospel to people who would have never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus. And Paul saw his life on earth in perspective of his fellowship with Jesus in heaven. And the idea that suffering is inevitable and something we're given um, as believers seems counterintuitive, but it shows us that there's a purpose to every aspect of life, that it's not just the good, but it's everything in between. And I believe that an awareness of the end purpose of your life is a powerful testimony to the people around you as well. Our story, you've got a story, I've got a story, we've got experiences and backgrounds, they're different, sometimes they're collective, but all those things speak 
to how we see the world, how we live in the world, and how we impact the world. And that awareness, that greater purpose, helps us make the best of even bad situations. So right now, maybe you're going through something difficult in your life. It might be something difficult relative to a work situation. It might be something that's difficult relative to your spiritual life. It might be something that's difficult related to a family member. Whatever it is, know that God is at work. He's got a purpose in it. And he's got you where you are for a purpose. And don't miss the purpose that God has for you. And when we look at that intricate order and balance and the patterns that are part of life and creation, it is rational to conclude that they're not the product of blind, random forces. We see a design that is consistent with the designer who has a purpose. Sir Isaac Newton, among other leaders in the scientific uh, revolution, uh, many years ago, believed that the physical laws that he uncovered, uh, uh, the, the, the mechanical perfection of the workings of the universe that he identified, um, were like a precise demonstration of the watchmaker example. And the, those early scientists in particular that were Christian people who believed in uh, something that's observable, repeatable, and verifiable, those were people who were not looking at science in order to disprove God. They were looking at science in order to bolster what they believed about God. And they were trying to study the different processes and the systems of creation to be able to understand more about him. And I think ultimately that's what Paul was getting at when he, when he opens in Romans chapter 1 and he speaks about God's existence. And he says, listen, the existence of God has been made plain to, for everyone to see. In fact, he says so much so that they are without excuse. Like you can't look around you at, at general revelation and the order and the complexity of what God has made and, and conclude wisely that there is no God. The opposite should be true. And someone said that God's fingerprints are all over everything. Now, this argument is also related to uh, intelligent design. It's related to intelligent design. And you know, if you know anything about intelligent design at all, intelligent design is not explicitly a Christian concept. There are people who are proponents of intelligent design who leave the question open as to who the designer is. But they're not presenting it as this is the God of the Bible. They're just arguing for the idea of intelligent uh, design. And intelligent design says that there are causes that are necessary. There has to be a cause that is necessary to explain the complexity, the structures, and everything else that's empirically detectable. There's got to be something behind this. There has to be some something that has brought this into being. And uh, intelligent design, I think, is a plausible uh, argument, obviously, but I think it stops a, sh a step short is the biggest issue because it doesn't identify the designer, at least in the general sense. So what are the strengths of this argument of teleology? Well, first of all, it is an argument from inductive reasoning. Now, what does that mean? It just basically means that it begins with something that we can observe something we can see, something we can think about. And it's difficult to deny the presence of order and complexity in the universe when we're seeing what we can see with our eyes. 
it also moves from something within our experience that we can take hold of to something that is beyond our experience that is greater than us. So it connects the imminent with the transcendent. And the design argument raises the possibility, or we might even say the probability for the existence of God. Then the weaknesses of the argument is, have been posed, and one is that inductive proof leads only to probability. All right, so if we give ground on that, we say, all right, we'll, we'll agree with that. In, inductive reasoning only leads to probability. So therefore, we're not empirically proving somehow that God exists. No, we're not. However, again, it is a supporting idea that is consistent with the biblical argument. It's a supporting idea that is consistent with what our concept about God is. And therefore, it strengthens our faith. And it strengthens our ability to communicate the truth about God to other people. Another problem with this argument is that people sometimes judge the attributes of the creator by what is created. And what I mean by that specifically is a major problem for many people, whether it's an excuse or it's a valid problem, is the problem of, of evil. The whole idea of a theodicy. Why is there evil? If God is good, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and so on, then why are all these bad things in the world? And people impose the bad things that are in the world on the creator himself, and they say, therefore, he could not be a good God because of all the things that we see. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying it, obviously we believe, if we believe the whole framework of this biblical worldview, that there is such a thing as sin, there's rebellion against God, there are consequences for that sin, God has given people free will with which to act, they don't always use that free will responsibly, they often use it very poorly, and there are more consequences that come from that. And that goes a long way toward our understanding of why these things happen in the world. And they don't, in that, negate the character or the goodness of God. And then third and finally is cosmology. This is the observable understanding of the universe. Cosmology, the observable understanding of the universe. Now we go to Psalm 148 and verse 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded... And they were created. Cosmology refers to the way we understand the structure of the universe. The biblical concept of how the heavens and the earth were structured by God represents a particular cosmology. A cosmology is a story that explains how the universe came into being and what our place is in it. So when we think about creation cosmology, which is the specific type of cosmology that we're identifying here... It says that God created the universe and he created people in his image in order to have a relationship with him. And because God created the universe and everything is in it and he made us to have a relationship with him, and because God is sovereign, then we would affirm the idea that all of history is moving toward a desired end. And it's moving consistent with what God's plan is for it. He said, where, where might we see this concept in the world? And the answer is everywhere. Because even cultures who don't have or believe the Genesis account have historically had a supernatural explanation to the origin of the world. This has been an idea that is common because God has placed eternity on the hearts 
of men. And for the Israelites, the universe was divided into three parts. This was the framework or the, the grid that they looked uh, at things and they looked at life through. They believed there was the heavenly realm, which is where God resides. They believed there's the earthly realm, where humans reside, where we are. And then they believed there's the underworld, where the dead reside. So the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, and the underworld. Interestingly, each of the three are reflected in the Ten Commandments. You say, where? Well, Exodus 20 and verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now, this is a helpful little framework because it gives us some ability to more clearly view God and ourselves. And for the ancient readers of Scripture, all three places of the universal structure played a role in God's plan for salvation and for redemption. And we know and we celebrate that God <clears throat> created a beautiful world. And in that beautiful world, he placed his image bearers within it. And he called us to advance his kingdom domain throughout the rest of the earth. And sin entered into that narrative, bringing death. Distortion came to God's creation. Darkness overcame the earth. And this set the stage for redemption in what God would do in leaving heaven and coming to earth as God in the flesh. So what God has done through his only son is he has left his place in heaven. He has entered into the earthly realm. He has defeated the power of sin and darkness through his death on the cross. He has descended into the realm of the dead. He has been resurrected, and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. I love the way Michael Heiser summed it up. He said, from the beginning, God wanted his human family to live with him in a perfect world, along with the family he already had in the unseen world, his heavenly host. That story, God's goal, its opposition by the powers of darkness, its failure, and its ultimate future success is what this book is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. So Scripture tells the story of God's creation, His intention, His intervention, and His redemption. So by way of summary, the ontological argument in its various forms argues for the existence of God from thought. And it is a logical argument. The teleological argument um, proceeds from the order and the beauty that we see in the world. And it takes us to an intelligent designer. And we are not at the knowledge of God in Scripture. His ways are not our ways, but yet he has made himself known to us. And then the, the cosmological argument um, attempts to deduce the existence of of a cause that is demonstrable with the effect. So all we have is a self-existent, first, and absolute cause that is none other than God himself. Now, what about this idea of, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the last argument here? I think one of the strengths of it is it does create a very simple argument. Um, it's an ultimate 
explanation that stems from a first cause. So it's a big jump, but I think it's a logical jump. And it's based on experiential evidence. So you can look around you. It's very similar to general revelation. You can see the clouds. You can feel the breeze. You can smell the flowers. You can gather information on creation. It's fundamentally a focus on the nature of these things. One of the weaknesses of this last argument is that it may seem to contradict itself. Because if logic says everything has a cause for existence, but then we hold to the fact that God is an uncaused being, then we can get into a little bit of a circular argument. And it's also proposed that there may be uh, more than one cause than classical theism, which, of course, we would disagree with. Um, but that would be something that people would use to be able to argue against this particular uh, concept. I want to close with this quote from Herman Bovink. Uh, he's a theologian of old, and here's what he says. He said, The proofs may augment and strengthen our faith, but they do not serve as its ground. Now, I'm going to unpack this in just a second. He says, They are rather the consequences, the products of faith's observation of the world. The proofs do not induce faith, and objections against them do not wreck it. They are instead testimonies by which God is able to strengthen already given faith. Now let me just make a summary statement to clarify, I think, what he's relating here. Sometimes people view apologetics as a silver bullet. They think about it as the one technique that if you just knew enough logic and philosophy and reasoning in the world that you could convince anybody to come into the kingdom because it makes so much sense. The problem is that does not take into account the darkened hearts of people who neither seek nor know the truth or desire to know the truth. And it fails to understand the true spiritual condition uh, that people are in. Apologetics as discipleship is extremely valuable. And that's why it fits in so well with this idea of developing a biblical worldview because it strengthens our faith. We think about, oh, there's a reason. There's logic for why God might exist in addition to the, to the foundational truth of Scripture, which is the ultimate and only authority. Oh, that makes sense. When we look at the design, that we could say that there's an intelligent designer. And all these ideas that we have, they're ways that we can talk with people and we can ask questions. Well, have you ever thought about this? Well, how would you look at this? You ever thought about why the Bible says this? And it's a way for us to have a good conversation with people uh, about these various ideas. But they are not the grounds of our faith. So there's no philosophical concept that's going to rise anywhere close to the authority or the usefulness of Scripture. It's simply going to be supplementary and it help us and encourage us uh, in our faith. So they're the consequences, as he says here, the products of faith's observation of the world. So these proofs don't induce faith. These objections don't wreck it. So somebody disagrees with you and they say the Bible's untrue, it's foolish, there's no reason to believe it. It doesn't change the fact that it's still true and it's valuable. So my opinion about it or your opinion about it or anybody else's opinion about it is not the ultimate authority. God's the authority. His word is the truth. And therefore we come back to that foundation. And that's where our testimonies can be strengthened. So I hope this is helpful. I know this is a lot of information that if you've not been in this type of uh, schooling 
before. You may not have even encountered it or cared about it. It might be something that's not all that uh, riveting to you. Um, but I think it does fit in well with an apologetic understanding of developing a biblical worldview. The Bible is the truth, and God is the authority, and he can be trusted. Everywhere we look around us, we can see evidence of his existence, of his power, of his, sust- of his sustaining power, and of his kindness to us. He is good to us, and for that we should be thankful. Let's bow our heads together as we pray, and uh, we'll wrap up our service this evening. Don't forget either after we pray that the worship ministry is going to be gathering for their weekly time of preparation here in just a few moments. So, Father, we are grateful that you have given us your word, that you've given us our minds, the ability to think and to reason and to logically process things, to strengthen our faith. Um, God, your ways are higher than our ways. You are the God of all eternity, the first uh, mover of all things, the one who is uncaused. And, and that's uh, an amazing thought, just to even process that, to conceive of it. But Lord, we, we believe it by faith. And I pray that as we interact with the world around us, that you would help us as we think through these things to have a, uh, some tools uh, that we can apply, uh, some framework that we can look through and, and think about ideas that are presented And help us to think well, Lord, that it might honor you and better communicate the good news about Jesus. And so, Father, bless the remainder of this week. Thank you for everybody who's come out tonight. Uh, Lord, may your hand be on us as we uh, seek to live for you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.